Welcome, and thank you for joining this podcast brought to you by the American Heart Association. The Association's Digital Digest series features a range of podcasts and videos focused on the latest resuscitation science topics. Hello, I'm Dr. Alan DeCon, a pediatric critical care physician from Stollery Children's Hospital in Edmonton, Canada. Uh, it's my pleasure to be able to speak with Dr. Ahmed Idris, uh, emergency medicine physician from University of Texas Southwestern here in Dallas. And what we're going to be speaking about is, uh, is, is drowning. And clearly this is, a, uh, is an area of interest uh, to all of us, both professionally and also from uh, the perspective of the American Heart Association. Um, maybe just as a, as a lead in, Dr. Idris, you can share with us just a little bit about why, why this is important from your perspective. So I've been interested in uh, basic life support resuscitation for a long time. I started my research in that area in 1986, and I've been on the Emergency Cardiovascular Care Committee uh, since 94, uh, primarily on the Basic Life Support Committee. Um, drowning is an important basic life support problem. People who have drowned require immediate CPR in order to survive. And so that really falls within my area of interest of basic life support. So obviously, when we're, we're talking about uh, adults or children that have, uh, that have suffered this, um, I guess maybe you can just walk us through a little bit about, from your, from your standpoint, what the recommended course of action should be for drowning victims and, and what, whether this differs and, and, or how it should differ compared to uh, the patient that we come across just as a, a sudden collapse uh, a cardiac arrest event. What, what is the difference between those patients? The American Heart Association recommends immediate CPR, uh, including immediate chest compression, as well as rescue breathing. The difference between cardiac arrest caused by drowning and cardiac arrest caused by immediate collapse is that uh, the one that's caused by immediate collapse occurs primarily in adults. Um, the origin is a cardiac origin where the heart stops pumping blood effectively, usually caused by a cardiac arrhythmia like ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia. Uh, the underlying cause of that usually is cardiac ischemia, uh, coronary artery disease. So the difference there is that when the heart stops uh, pumping effectively, there's immediate cessation of circulation and immediate cessation of delivery of oxygen and blood to the tissues. Interestingly, the blood still has a lot of oxygen bound on hemoglobin uh, that can supply the tissues during chest compression. So starting chest compression immediately makes sense because it can still continue to circulate oxygen to the rest of the body uh, while awaiting the arrival of EMS. Now, what about drowning? In drowning, the heart is still beating uh, effectively, still pumping blood, but the person, the drowning victim, is not breathing. They're unable to bring oxygen into their lungs and oxygenate blood. So the blood that's circulating is gradually depleted of oxygen. The heart doesn't stop immediately 
but when it becomes starved of oxygen, it also stops pumping effectively. On the one hand, people who collapse and have cardiac arrest because of a cardiac problem need immediate chest compression, but not necessarily rescue breaths. And that's why we recommend today hands-only CPR given by lay rescuers. A drowning victim, however, needs oxygen. So they need both chest compression and rescue breathing because their blood is depleted of oxygen and they need oxygen restored. I think one of the things that, you know, as a pediatric practitioner, I've, I've become very sensitized to over the last 10 to 15 years is, is this movement away from, not away from, but uh, towards chest compression only CPR. And, and I guess I'd, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on on how um, how we look at the bystander um, being able to kind of distinguish between whether or not, you know, I've, I've been taught in chest compression only CPR or, or I've watched a video, I've ne never done a, um, a, um, uh, a BLS course, how, how am I supposed to recognize one from the other? Yes, it's obvious someone, one person's dripping water, the other person isn't, but, but, but how do we get around that when it comes to actually teaching people and, and, and knowing what the right thing to do is? One thing I might add that if a person doesn't know how to do mouth-to-mouth -mouth ventilation or they're reluctant to do it in a drowning victim, they should still do chest compression. Uh, that can still help. But in order to do mouth-to-mouth uh, ventilation effectively, it helps to t have some training. It's a, a more difficult task than chest compressions alone. It requires opening the airway and then giving breaths. So that's a skill that is a little bit more complicated. Now, I might add also that uh, children who suffer cardiac arrest also typically have a respiratory problem as its origin. And so the American Heart Association recommends, ideally, chest compression and rescue breathing for children who have cardiac arrest, whether it's by drowning or not. I think that there's uh, some situations that are very predictable. Uh, for example, if uh, a family has a swimming pool in their house and young children, uh, they should really learn how to do CPR because it's a very common source of drowning where there's uh, swimming pools and young children. They sometimes walk into it inadvertently or they're swimming and get a mouthful of water and go to the bottom. And so we really do recommend that families with swimming pools learn how to do CPR. That's an obvious uh, population. How common is this? How big a problem is this in in, uh, in in the U.S. right now? Obviously, we hear about it in the, in the news, but but relative to um, the the incidence of uh, of cardiac arrest out in the community, um, do you have a sense, or do you have some numbers as to how you know how frequently this is going to be something that's going to be seen as opposed to just regular, you know, a regular community-based cardiac arrest? It's estimated that there are about three thousand five hundred. Uh, drowning-related deaths in the United States annually uh, by the uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And there's an additional 300 boating-related uh, drowning deaths as well. 
that occur annually. Worldwide, there's roughly about 400,000 death, drowning deaths annually, and 90% of those occur in low-income and middle-income nations. The uh, World Health Organization has taken an active role in trying to engage in preventive activities uh, in those countries, uh, things like uh, teaching them how to rescue a, a drowning victim, as well as taking preventive measures to uh, prevent drowning to begin with. We put, um, you know, we put a lot of um, uh, focus on, on education and, and training to try and um, prepare bystanders to be able to do the right thing for, for the right patient. And I guess maybe can you give us a sense when it comes to, when it comes to, to drowning and, and drowning victims that do need CPR, whether we end up doing chest compression only CPR or conventional CPR, um, how, how much of an impact, not how much of an impact, but what are the outcomes that we end up seeing with CPR and how does that compare to, uh, to just a, you know, a community-based cardiac arrest that would happen out on the street? Some of the same factors that predict uh, survival from cardiac-related cardiac arrest are similar for drowning-related cardiac arrest, namely, how long have they been in cardiac arrest? So for drowning victims, it would be, when did the face first become uh, submerged in water? How long has the victim been submerged? And how long have they been having CPR? Uh, so it's really the duration, especially the, the duration of submersion that's related to uh, outcome. Uh, otherwise, I think the uh, response is similar. In fact, it could be even better than cardiac-related CPR in the sense that the majority of people who, who drown are actually uh, rather healthy in comparison to uh, people who have cardiac-related cardiac arrest. They're younger. They tend to be uh, adolescent and children, and so they uh, would, would be expected to have better outcome uh, under uh, the same circumstances of the duration of cardiac arrest before receiving CPR. So is there anything different that, um, that, that we teach to rescuers if they are doing conventional CPR to a drowning victim compared to another victim that you would end up uh, giving conventional CPR to? Is, is there, are there differences with the approach to one versus the other? Maybe some of that includes questions such as, you know, how long a rescuer might be doing this before they said, okay, it's, this is, it's futile, I'm not going to continue, the outcome is poor. What ends up distinguishing the, not the drowning conventional CPR victim from the non-drowning CPR victim? In drowning, uh, since the origin of the cardiac arrest is not ventricular fibrillation, if they've been under uh, water for, let's say, 10 to 20 minutes, they may not be in ventricular fibrillation. They may be in uh, a certain rhythm called pulseless electrical activity, uh, which is uh, reversible with, with just oxygenation. Now, of course, you have to circulate that oxygenation, oxygenated blood, so chest compression is uh, important. But still, pulseless electrical activity can be converted into a pulse with effective CPR. When a person who has a related cardiac arrest 
goes into pulseless electrical activity or asystole, that is really a marker for, for a long period of uh, lack of circulation and oxygen. Uh, while with drowning, it, it's more related to a period without oxygen. And so I think that the, the two are a little bit different. There have been reports of uh, children surviving quite well after being submerged for up to 35 minutes. Now, it depends on uh, the temperature of the water also. So children, if the water is cold, like during winter, children become hypothermic quickly uh, compared to adults. And the hypothermia can uh, preserve the brain. And so that's one mechanism for the survival being uh, better in children, even though they've been submerged for a fairly long period of time. I myself uh, had an experience where a child had been underwater in the winter in Florida for at least half an hour. And uh, on arrival in my emergency department, uh, the paramedics were still doing chest compression. When we took over, there was a pulse and we started warming the child. The temperature was lower than the lowest temperature that our clinical thermometer could record. It was, so that means that it was probably less than 85 degrees Fahrenheit. That child was clearly hypothermic. Ultimately, the child did pretty well. The child had some initial problems, uh, but with rehabilitation, after about two or three years uh, later, after the event, the child was back in school and doing quite well. Uh, that's an anecdotal case, but I think it really does typify some of the uh, pediatric drownings that we care for and uh, why uh, a prognosis might be a little different for children than adults. Obviously, we've, we've focused a lot in the last few minutes on talking about uh, intervention um, for, for drowning victims, but, but I, uh, there are obviously external factors that I guess maybe there can be a role when it comes to prevention as well. Can you share with us a little bit what, um, what your, uh, your thoughts are or what we see when it comes to um, some of those factors that, that do contribute to drowning that maybe we can modify? So I talked about swimming pools. Owners can put locks on their fences so that uh, children can't claim, claim, uh, get, gain entry uh, when there's not an adult around. Um, there are alarms that can be put uh, in the swimming pool to alert the uh, family uh, that someone's entered the swimming pool and uh, things like that. Now, what about uh, other things? Learning how to swim is very important. So the family should know how to swim if they have a swimming pool, and uh, they should teach the child early on as well. And I mentioned about taking a CPR course. And what about other things? Drowning in oceans, for example, or other bodies of water. Now, one thing, <laughs> I mentioned boating-related drowning. 70% of boating-related drowning had alcohol involved in some way. And so that's easily preventable. If you're going to consume alcohol, do it after you're out of the water and on land, uh, but not when you're on the water. Uh, that's not a good place. Also, people should learn how to swim if they're going to go into the ocean or be around bodies of water like that. Now, when I uh, go snorkeling these days, actually since 1986, when my brother-in-law drowned, 
I always wear a life vest uh, when I snorkel in the ocean. Uh, by the way, my uh, we resuscitated my uh, brother-in-law. He had no pulse when we first got him out of the water. He was under for about 10 to 15 minutes, and we got a pulse back uh, after we got him onto the shore and uh, gave him CPR. He was unconscious for a day, and he woke up in an intensive care unit uh, about 2,000 miles away. So this happened in St. John in the Virgin Islands, and I flew him to uh, Shands Hospital at uh, the University of Florida. And he woke up there, and he had no memory. His first utterance was, where am I? <laughs> and uh, he had uh, some uh, loss of memory and some uh, minor disability. He wasn't quite as uh, energetic as usual, but two years later he was back to his normal self. So the rehabilitation can take a little time, but the brain is uh, an amazing thing, and given some time it can fully recover. So after my brother-in-law uh, got back home, my uh, sister uh, contacted me and uh, she was a little bit concerned because he wasn't quite as active and uh, energetic as he had been in the past. And so I told her to give him some time. And two years later, he was back to working two jobs. He was back to his usual energetic self. And he, that's really an example of uh, how the brain really can continue to recover even over a period of two years. Um, it's really a very plastic uh, uh, part of our body and uh, can recover amazingly well. That really helps provide, uh, provide context. And I think that, uh, that also really is a, is a great testament to, to the whole idea ahead of your time, I should say, of, of high quality CPR. So that's, that's, uh, that's great. One of the last questions I just want to touch on, Dr. Idris, is, is um, whether it ends up being a, a, a bystander or a, someone in the, in the emergency department, there may be pieces of information that, that end up being important to gather that will allow you as the emergency medicine physician or, or another consultant to help make sure that you can provide the best care uh, as well as prognosticate. Can you maybe share a little bit around what those pieces of information are that you would want um, a healthcare professional or a bystander to be able to make note of, to be able to share with the, with the care team that are going to be looking after oh, yes. that patient? I've been part of the Resuscitation Outcome Consortium that was started in 2004. And in 2005, we started a cardiac risk registry. And we have learned so much about the treatment of cardiac arrest, the prognosis of cardiac arrest, and so forth and so on from that registry alone. Registries are so important. What's lacking in drowning is that we don't have really good data in those registries regarding time. So the time that the face first became submerged is important information. So that's something that a bystander can help with. Um, how long were they submerged? Extremely important. And um, how long 
did they receive CPR? That's another uh, important piece of time data that um, would be so helpful to include in registries and that have been lacking in the past. It's been a great opportunity to talk, Dr. Idris. Thanks, thanks very much. Is there anything else you'd like to be able to share with the listener before, uh, before we sign off? Well, I would um, tell anyone who uh, witnesses a drowning to uh, call 911 as soon as possible, start CPR, at least chest compression, and give mouth-to-mouth ventilation if you know how to do that. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Heart Association and the American Stroke Association. For transcripts of this podcast and more information about resuscitation science, please visit cpr.heart.org or engage with us via social media using hashtag ECC Digital Digest. <laughs>